Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. That is Jonah chapter two, verses one and two. I'm Sandra Flack. Uh, Welcome to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey. I love the scripture from Jonah, these verses about second chances. Uh, We have a real second chance story for you today, and I can't wait for you to meet our guest. Uh, But first, a reminder about some vital resources that we have for you. Check out this. Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast would like to invite you to join their Hope for the FASD Journey, a virtual support community for parents and caregivers raising individuals with an FASD, diagnosed or not. This faith-based community includes an online bi-monthly support group, a monthly VIP conversation, and a private Facebook group which includes a video devotional from Natalie and Sandra every Saturday. To register, visit justicefororphansny.org forward slash training forward slash F-A-S-D. So I always like to remind everybody about FASD fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Um, It is a spectrum of disorders that affects people who were exposed to alcohol in the womb. Um, It impacts one in 20 school-age children across the United States, um, and especially uh, higher percentages in um, adoptive and foster placements. As a mom myself of two teenagers with FAS, fetal alcohol syndrome, I know how difficult and how isolating this parenting journey can be um, when our kiddos have been prenatally exposed. So you are not alone. Um, I'm I'm here to provide uh, support and vital resources because I know how challenging it can be. And I don't want you to go it alone. Our support group um, is, is just such a lifeline for so many of us on this journey. So I hope you will check that out. I also also offer um, coaching sessions for parents and caregivers, along with um, in-person and online FASD workshops. I am a certified facilitator of the FACET neurobehavioral model, and I'm passionate about not only teaching about FASD, but equipping families and helping them develop strategies and, and resources and accommodations to help their kids be more successful at home and at school um, and out in the community. So I hope that you'll check that out. Um, I do have a free introductory workshop coming up on Wednesday, March 20th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. It's a free, I call it a lunch and learn. Um, It's an introduction to FASD. 
it's it's 60, 60 minutes of content of me teaching, and then I do stay on the call so that we can do some Q&A. Um, and it's, it's great for parents who are just starting to realize maybe, um, you know, maybe prenatal exposure happened. Maybe that's, this is explaining what's going on with the big behaviors with our kiddos, or maybe you, you're kind of already in there, you know, what's going on, but you know, other kids, other people in your kids' lives, maybe they're not aware of what's going on and, um, grandparents and, uh, adult siblings, next door neighbors, babysitters, school teachers, youth group leaders, um, anyone really interacting with your kiddos, um, they would benefit from this training as well. So um, it's a, it's free. They just have to sign up on our website. Uh, and so to go to um, our website to, for any of our training, for any of our resources, the support group to contact me, any of that, all of the above, Go to our website, justicefororphansny.org, and uh, you can click on the tra training tab at the top of the page in the drop-down menu. You see FASD. Click there, and you'll be able to find all of our FASD resources. So we want to be a support to all adoptive and foster parents uh, and even kinship caregivers on this journey. Um, so along those lines, please subscribe to this podcast, follow it, whatever whatever platform you're listening on, whether it's from your um, Apple phone or device, um, YouTube, because we are now releasing the video versions of this podcast. If you wanted to watch the podcast as opposed to just listening, um, follow us, like us, leave a review. Um, that really, really helps us to be able to be more accessible to families who need the support and the encouragement that we offer um, through the podcast and through our other resources. So now with all that out of the way to our guest, I'm super excited um, to chat today with Pam Willis. Pam and her husband, Gary, raised five kids and started fostering back in 2013 when their youngest two were in seventh and ninth grades. Six years later, they met a sibling set of seven in need of a second chance. And that's when their adoption journey began. So I can't wait to unpack this story. So please welcome to the show, adoptive mom, Pam Willis. Hey, Pam, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. I really appreciate you inviting me. Yeah, well, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you've got a busy schedule too. And I just love your story, and I'm so excited for our listeners to get to hear from you, a fellow adoptive mom. But you started uh, fostering, and I know you you and, and Gary, your husband, have five biological children, and they were pretty much grown when you stepped into the foster care arena. So tell us what led to that decision. That's right. So I was a nurse for 14 years and I worked in labor and delivery. And so of course I would see the occasional situation where, you know, maybe um, child protective services was stepping in or there was a foster, you know, family that was receiving a child. And I always, my heart just always went out to those children in those situations. At the time I didn't understand, you know, very much about the situation, but I knew that it was something that I wanted to do in the future if, 
if the opportunity arose. And so I always would tell my husband, oh, there was this baby today. And, and then it went with, you know, these social workers and I just felt bad, but I wanted it to, so I wanted to hug it and hold it and make sure it knew it was safe. And, and, you know, can we take babies like that? And my husband would always say, you know, someday, maybe, you know, someday, honey, like we're pretty busy with our five right now. Yeah. <laughs> and, so it was just always kind of in the back of my mind as a as a someday thing. And I really sort of thought of it as, oh, well, you know, when all of my kids are out of the house, uh, because my husband and I were young parents, I felt like I, I won't be that old when they're all out of the house. So, you know, maybe I can do it then. And um, always just thinking about fostering, of course, not thinking like I would start a whole other family or anything, you know, it's just like, I want to help. I want to be part of that situation. You know, I'm a nurse. I understand a lot about, you know, trauma and, and the things to do to make children feel safe. And I just felt I had something to offer. So that's how we sort of came to, you know, the decision that we were going to do it. And in 2013, with only uh, one middle schooler and one high schooler left in my home, I did kind of feel like I had a lot of extra time after, you know, raising the five. And so I thought, well, maybe this is the time. Maybe we can do this just maybe one, you know, we'll start with one uh, foster child and, and see how it goes. And so my husband and I just jumped in to the training and, and the rest was history. <laughs> wow. So were you primarily fostering babies or over those years, it was whoever came? We said zero to five at first, just because I was thinking that it would be easier for me not to, because um, I was still working. So at that time, I had changed careers and I was working from home, but, um, you know, it was an office job. I had to be on the computer. And so my plan was always that I had a nanny who would take care of my foster child downstairs while I was working upstairs. And if I needed to come down, I could come up and down as much as I needed through the day. Um, and so we thought, well, let's do zero to five. Let's not do school yet because we don't want to, you know, involve anybody having to drive someone to school or go back and forth. And so that was how we kind of came upon our decision to to start with that age. And um, and also I had, of course, a preteen boy and a teenage girl. So I was like, well, I can't do teenagers because I don't want to introduce, you know, the opposite gender in, in the home at the same time. So so that, you know, that played into it as well at that time. And so um, we started our, our classes were wonderful. We had gone through a private agency and uh, really felt a lot of support from them as we went through the journey and the home study and all of those things. Um, and we were just really, really ready to do it. So um, we never, ever uh, did just take one at a time. <laughs> Everyone who's done foster care knows how yeah. that goes. Yeah. So <laughs> they very rarely come as a as a single. <laughs> right. That's right. So, so, you, so yeah. you're fostering about six years and then you discovered a sibling set of seven who right. needed a second chance, really. So can you can you share with us how that all played out? Sure. So at that time, we were actually still fostering. We had um 
couple of our kids had gone home. We had kids from two different families. And so we did have one baby at the time. And but he was getting ready to go be adopted by a family member. So we were just kind of waiting for the family members home study and all of that. And so we were kind of at a crossroads at that point. My husband and I were thinking, so that child who had been in middle school when we started was now graduating. And we were kind of thinking, well, maybe we should sell this big old house and, you know, maybe because we're down to, you know, this, this foster baby's going to be going somewhere soon. And we'll kind of be at the moment, you know, without any, anyone. So what should we do? And we were kind of like, you know, this is the time to figure figure out if we want to do something because we wouldn't be disrupting anyone's, you know, placement or anything. So we tossed around some ideas, but we just felt like, I don't know, we just didn't really want to sell the house. But we felt like, well, we probably should because it's a big six bedroom house. It's just me and my husband, you know, clunking around in here. <laughs> and my son was already one foot out the door as he was graduating, you know. So um, we, we sort of hemmed and hawed about it. And one day I was scrolling through social media and I saw a repost of a news story of these children and there was a picture of them all lined up and it it said seven siblings in need of forever home and I, I it was posted by a friend of mine not someone who uh, fostered or um, you know had anything to do with the foster adoption system but it was he was just you know trying he posted something like if anyone can help these this family or something and of course I clicked on it and I thought, oh, seven, like no one is going to be able to take seven. I know how that goes. Like they have a hard time even placing four, you know, and like immediately the next thought was you have room to take seven. Mm. And it just really hit me like a ton of bricks. And I thought, oh my gosh, like I'd never thought about adoption. I hadn't thought, you know, I was like, I'm a foster parent. Like, <laughs> I don't, this, this wasn't something that I had ever really wrapped my brain around, but it was just this instant feeling of connection. And it was this mm. feeling like no one else can do this, but you. And I know that wasn't probably true. I'm sure someone else would have been able to do it or come along, but but that feeling was so strong in me that I just had to immediately call the number and find out, you know, what the situation was and, and put my information in. Wow. And you did that, like you did that without your husband knowing that you were inquiring about seven more kids. <laughs> no. So I actually, I went to my husband a couple hours later, I had seen the post, you know, while I was working, I was on the computer, just, you know, taking a break on social media or, or what have you. And I thought, well, I'll tag my husband in this post, and then he can read it. And then I'll talk to him about it later. And so I went downstairs later, you know, and I said, Hey, honey, did you see the the post that I tagged you in? And he said about the seven children, I said, Yeah. And he just got really kind of like quiet for a second. He said, we should adopt them. Wow. And I was stunned. I was absolutely stunned. I thought there's no way I'm never going to talk him into this. You know, I was coming down prepared for all the reasons why I needed to convince him that these were already my children. <laughs> and he just had that really strong feeling as well. That was the first thing he said to me. And then, and then I sort of flipped 
the tables on him. I said, you want to adopt seven children? And, you know, <laughs> I sort of like started questioning him, like, what are you thinking kind of thing? And he said, I don't know. I just feel bad for them. And like, you know, we have all this room and like, we could mm -hmm. do it. We know how to do this. We know how to raise kids. And, you know, and I was like, okay, well, let me call. Let's, you know, let's see what happens. And, and if it's meant to be, they'll call me back and, you know, so that's how it started. <laughs> Wow, what an incredible story. And I love how God just, you know, weaves weaves it all together, Absolutely. gets you on the same page. So what happened from there? So did you, how did you get to meet them? What were those next steps? So I called and um, gave my information and they, um, and I said, you know, I was in the next county. And so they, um, I knew that that was a little bit of a hurdle, but if they're looking, you know, so widely on the news that it probably wasn't going to be an issue. There's not, you know, tons of families around that even have the space for seven. And so I said, you know, I'm in the next county, but I am certified and I do have I do have uh, space for them. I have a six bedroom home. I have a large vehicle because we always kept a, a large van, you know, so we could take our kids or their spouses or, you know, anybody. Yeah. Uh, so I said, I already have a large vehicle. Of course, I have car seats and all these things because I've been fostering for so long. And they were like, oh, okay, okay. So they kind of escalated me to the next, uh, you know, person to talk to. And then they escalated me again to another person to talk to. And I think it was like a couple of days later, I got a call from the actual caseworker. And so I was like, oh, okay, this is big time if the caseworker is calling me. And every moment that went between those days, I was just like, I wanted to call every single day. And I kept mm -hmm. looking at the picture and I kept watching the video and I kept thinking, I hope my kids are okay. <laughs> and I, I mean, honestly, I, I, they were already mine in my heart. And, and I just kept thinking, you know, I hope they're okay. And I hope they, they hurry up. And, you know, I would try to tell myself, okay, well, maybe they found someone for them as long as they're taken care of, I guess they'll be okay. But I just really, you know, I wanted to call like every hour of every day. I thought, well, I can't do that. They'll think I'm just crazy. And they'll be like, we're not calling her back. <laughs> So the social worker called me and we had a long talk, like maybe an hour. And we started finding all of these things that, you know, really would fit well for the kids. For example, they had um, some ties to Las Vegas and they had um, some like family friends that were pretty much kind of their only family. And they had a half sister there. And so the social workers were like, you know, they do have this connection. What, how do you feel about um, any connection with others? And I said, oh, I think it's so important. And I, be, I would be so happy to, you know, allow that and facilitate that. And I said, besides my adult daughter lives in Las Vegas and we go there all the time. And they were like, oh, that's great. So yeah. that was sort of a, you know, a point in my favor. And, uh, and then they asked me, you know, the kids, they do um, have a church that they like, and um, they're wondering if they can be taken to church. And I said, of course, you know, church is really important to us. And then the social worker said, you know, they go to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I said, oh, so do we. <laughs> so yeah. it was just an immediate, you know, okay, there's another there's another yeah. check mark in our favor. They had been uh, exposed to that church just briefly. And 
um, during their time in foster care, that was the only thing they could remember as like safety and warmth and feeling wow. God's love. And so they had asked, you know, they, they wanted to feel that love again. And so it was just sort of a beautiful thing to say, of course, you know, we're, we're very active in our church. And so they would be, you know, they'd be with us every week. That's not a problem at all. Um, so it was just a really nice conversation with the social worker. And of course, she said, you know, we have a lot of things to go through. We have a lot of, you know, people to talk to. There were thousands of calls about this. And I thought, okay, thousands, you know, she's kind yeah. of preparing that, that maybe I'm not, you know, the one. And so now I have a really good friendship with this social worker now. And uh, we've kept close all these years. And what she says is she wanted to call me every day. And but she didn't want to seem crazy. And I told her the same thing. I wanted to call every day. But I thought, well, I better not call that social work. I better give it three days. So I would like make myself wait before I called and say, how are the kids doing? And, you know, just checking on them. And I'm thinking about them a lot. And so it progressed from there. Um, that was January. And then um, they asked me, they came out, they interviewed my husband and I, you know, in person, they talked to us about some of the issues that the kids had, which, you know, we were like, sure, I mean, that's what we would expect, you know, from from kids in, in trauma and coming through the system. And, um, and the the kids had lost their parents, both um, in an accident, both parents. And so and the kids were in the accident with them. Mm. So aside from the trauma of um, the living circumstances that they had gone through with, you know, domestic violence and drugs and, and homelessness and things like that, that were part of their childhood, they also had to witness their parents' death. And so this oh. was hugely traumatic and, um, you know, affected all of them differently. But it was something that I was very committed to taking on and, you know, and helping them through. And so it, it even more, you know, it sort of evoked the nurse in me, like I can help, <laughs> I can, yeah. I can help these kids, you know? Yeah. Um, and so we were, you know, sort of given all the information and we're in California. So in California, you um, must foster six months before you can adopt a child. And so they were coming to us as foster, but potential, you know, matched for adoption, potential adoption. And um, so they said, okay, we think we want to match you. Um, would you make, you know, some a little book for the kids or something to kind of give them, you know, information about you. So I made one book for each kid. <laughs> and I put um, pictures there. I made like scrapbook. I was like, these are our bedrooms. This is our backyard. This is our church. And I kind of tried to do anything I could to to think, okay, if these kids are being told that there's this family that wants them, I try to put myself in their position and think, okay, they, you know, they don't know anything. They don't know if we're good people, bad people, if we're, you know, scary or whatever. So right, I put right. pictures of me. I said, you know, this is my name and I like the color purple and I love chocolate and and this is my husband, you know, his name and what he likes. And then I did put our, our oldest son in there too, because he was still kind of in and out, you know, of the house a lot. So he would be, he would be here. You know, this is Sam, our oldest, um, our youngest but would be older than them. And I said, he likes this and that, you know, so we're just people basically. And these are the kind of people we are. And um, this is where we live and this is what we do. And I sent those books down and the kids just love them. Mm -hmm. And the social workers were like, oh, this is so great. It's just the best thing. And we got to meet them in March. So um, that was two, no, no, February, two months. It was about 
almost exactly two months to the time we got to meet them. And uh, we met them and we thought, okay, ahead of time, my husband and I were driving there. We're like, this is, this is going to be a lot. It's going to be overwhelming. They're probably going to have lots of issues, you know, because poor kids have been through just so much and we just couldn't fathom. And so we get to a park and um, we're meeting them at the park and we're just like kid after kid after kid that we're talking to one-on-one. We're just like, gosh, what a great kid. And then this one, what a great kid, what a great kid. And we're just kind of, we got in the car after that meeting and we were like, wow, like these are really great kids. It was just incredible that, you know, we, we felt their spirits, their true spirits just immediately, you know, whatever issues or traumas that they had, we knew they were there, but we just immediately were able to see through those things and just see their hearts. And we were just in love with them instantaneously. We drove home that day. We were just like, Oh my gosh, I love these kids. When can we see them again? Wow. And um, yeah, so it was a little, uh, it was a little torturous because we had to wait until June for them to move in. They wanted them to be allowed to finish school in their current locations because two of them had a graduation. There was an eighth grade graduation and a sixth grade graduation for the two oldest. And so we thought, okay, you know, but we want to visit them as much as we can. They lived about an hour away from us. And um, so we would go as much as they would allow us uh, to go every weekend. The foster mom was kind of resistant to um, disrupting their schedule too much. Of course, I'm sure it was really disruptive to have these people come in and, you know, we're like, oh, we're we're going to, you know, talk about all these fun things that we're going to do. But go back to your foster home for now. Yeah. So I'm sure it was a little tough for her too. But um, after that couple months, you know, after a month, we started doing some overnights on the weekends and just transitioning into it. And by the time they moved in, they were so ready. They were like, can we go now? Can we go now? Oh, wow. So it was great. How old were the kids when, when you formally adopted them when they came? When they first came before, like when they moved in, they were two, three, four, five, six, and then 11 and 14, 11 and 13. Two, three, four, so, five, and six, and 11 and 14. Yeah. Wow. 11 and 13. 13. Yeah. And, and so, or actually I think she was, yeah, she was 11. So, I mean, they were just, the little ones were just, you know, little stair steps yeah. <laughs> one a year. <laughs> And, you know, in so many ways, they were delayed, uh, especially the youngest ones, you know, Mm -hmm. they were delayed in speech, they were delayed in um, just, you know, um, emotional maturity, things like that. Of course, the oldest daughter was very parentified and had such, you know, extreme responsibility for them and was very much their mother and very much their protector, um, which, you know, we worked on for so long for me to just say, you know, you're allowed to be a kid and just chill and not have to worry about it. And I just had to keep reminding her until she knew, you know, in her heart that they were safe. Um, it it took her a while to let go. And I totally understood that. And, um, 
the oldest boy, he he's one of those that so he had a huge amount of responsibility taking care of them as well. Often the two oldest would be left alone for days with the kids in their apartment and they would just have to try to figure out what to feed them or, you know, where they could find food or they had to sometimes steal food, you know. And so they had a lot of um, of this sort of responsibility. But it's interesting the way they both dealt with it when um, Ruby, the oldest daughter, when she continued to be parentified and continued to be concerned about everything that happened with them in every way, you know, um, almost too much, you know, where she had a hard time letting go. And Addie, the oldest, was he was one of those that had like complete memory block of almost his entire childhood. And he just didn't remember anything. He didn't remember the accident. He didn't remember so many things. People would say, do you remember the time, you know, Ruby would say, remember the time the police came? And then, and he was like, no, I don't remember that at all. And he truly didn't. He was so, just so traumatized. And that was the way he dealt with it. And he just needed calm and safety for a long time to be able to start processing. So, um, you know, that's just one example of how different they were. And all seven of them, all seven of them were just a little bit different in how they needed to be, you know, taken care of and needed to be reassured and um, needed to feel their safety. There were food issues, there were, you know, all kinds of issues that, um, and, and aside from that, of course, they had nothing of their own because the car accident, Uh, They were actually in the process of moving out of state when the car had crashed. And so everything they owned had been in a U-Haul and the U-Haul was um, destroyed and there was, you know, all their belongings were destroyed. So they really just had nothing that, you know, very, very, very few things that could be salvaged, you know, a a ring or a, a shirt of dad's or, you know, something like that. So there was a lot, a lot of work to do. I was really grateful for my years in foster care that gave yeah. me so much experience and understanding of the kinds of things that they would need. Yeah, that is, it's incredible, but that understanding and training that you had definitely necessary because um, yeah. I can only imagine the trauma. There had been trauma even before the accident with, right. with things going on and then trauma because um, it sounds like these kids, you know, they were like kids that would come into care, like that you had been fostering previously, but then the trauma with an accident and losing both parents and the kids were in the accident, you said. Right, right. So they all had injuries. The oldest two had the most severe injuries and it sort of got, um, you know, less severe as they got, the younger ones had less severe injuries. The oldest two had to be, um, you know, taken in helicopter. They had, you know, major injuries. So um, the the oldest girl, Ruby, she was in the hospital for close to a month, I think. Um, wow. You know, and this was all, of course, before before I knew them or knew of their story. Right. But right. you know, I think I don't even think they had processed any of that yet. It was like they were so in survival mode, and they were just yeah. there. I didn't I didn't realize it as much at the time because I didn't have a comparison. But I look at pictures of them now, and their eyes were just so sad and their eyes were just kind of hollow like there was just like not not a lot there they were so guarded and so just they were sad you know they were sad kids and um and we just got to work right away on all of it and it's been you know just a beautiful journey and a wonderful thing to watch them heal over the last five years 
incredible. And and the fact that they can all seven be together, that's really miraculous because yeah, it's hard, it's hard to keep siblings together. And, and that's not right. even considering how many of them there, there are. Um, so right. clearly a big adjustment for them coming into your family, um, yeah. but also a big adjustment for your family. Cause you have all these older kids, your, your youngest right. biological <laughs> son was in and out, but you do have older kids. So what did they all think of this? I think it was a good thing that we had fostered for so long prior because they were used to, you know, an extra couple kids being at every family event, you know, and, and always were so kind and so loving to these kids, you know, with Thanksgiving, you know, if they didn't, if they didn't live in the house and, you know, see the child all the time, like, you know, my youngest ones did still when we were fostering my older two that were already married, um, my older three actually were already married. Um, they would come to, you know, family events and they'd be like, oh, hi, who's this? And how are you? And just <laughs> so sweet and so kind always. Like they never were like, you know, what's this kid doing here? You know, <laughs> it was just, they always, they knew we fostered. They had this heart that we had you know, to care for, for someone that was in a, in a hard situation. And they always did their best to, to, you know, make those children feel welcome. And when it came to the time where we were considering the adoption, I talked to all the children individually. I said, you know, I really want to know how you feel about it. And they had differing opinions. Um, by then we had some grandchildren Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of my kids was like, well, is it going to take away, you know, from you being a grandma? And like, you know, that's a valid concern. I, sure. it, you know, I think that's understandable because I adore my grandchildren. And, you know, I, I said, you know, my heart is, has limitless capacity. I can take care of all of them at the same time. And I said, you know, my grandchildren are, will always be so special and they will be my grandchildren no matter what. And I'll make time for them. And I said, and besides a lot of my grandchildren are the same age as these kids. So they're going to have a blast playing together. And um, so he, he was reassured. And then another one was like, okay, well, financially, are you guys going to be okay, mom? Like, you know, they had like their different, different concerns, you know, mom, you're not the youngest anymore. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> and so, you know, financially, it's not you're not going to like use up your savings. And, you know, and so I assured him, you know, we're going to be fine. And um, I think my girls, they automatically had that motherly heart, like, absolutely, you must take them. There's absolutely no one better. You know, <laughs> they were just um, my my daughter, um, she was 25 at the time. She said, um, Mom, we had the greatest childhood. It was so sweet mm -hmm. to hear her say that she said, why would I deny anyone else that opportunity to be raised by you and have that great childhood? I thought that was such a sweet yeah. thing to say and such a, a wonderful insight for her to have. And so they all were really just very accepting of it. You know, if I, if they had a concern, I reassured them. And I think as they met the kids and realized what great kids they were, they were like, okay, you know, this is going to be, this is going to be okay. And of course it was an adjustment, but it wasn't ever like, oh, we're not, we're not talking. <laughs> we're not yeah. coming over, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. nothing like that. It was like, you know, 
they, you have to understand that their mom is the mom who decided to go to law school when I had five of them. My youngest was starting kindergarten wow. and I said, let's go to law school. <laughs> you know, they, They've watched their mom do crazy things, impossible wow. things. So they were probably like, okay, well, yeah, that's my mom. <laughs> there you go. There you go. It's in the DNA, right? <laughs> right. So Pam, how old is everybody now and how are they doing? I think they're doing really well. The oldest of the seven is 18. Um, he'll be 19 in June. And he's getting ready to um, go to, he wanted to go to a tech school and learn some sort of um, technical skill. He's a really smart kid. And um, so I suggested electrician or, you know, a trade school. And um, he said, what, I want to be a lineman. You know, I want to climb up on those poles and do dangerous <laughs> things. And I said, okay, so, so that's where he's headed is to lineman school in, uh, in April. And he's really excited about that. He's been just kind of, you know, working and saving money and having the experience of still, I mean, I know he's 18, but he's still kind of, you know, he's a, he's a young teenager yeah, because yeah. he missed yeah. out on so many years. It's the same with, you know, so many foster children as, as they're going through the system and they're, or they're going through their life of, you know, sort of this neglect that they have and the trauma that they have, they get behind on, you know, just experiencing life. And so I really felt this need for him to be um, just to be gentle with him and to allow him some extra time to do the things that, you know, maybe a normal, we say normal teenager would do. And, um, and that just, it, I gave him some grace in that. And to, I just told him, there's no rush, you know, I'm not, you're not being kicked out. He was kind of like, I'm 18, I got to go. And mm. I was like, no, you don't have to go anywhere. First, yeah. <laughs> first of all, um, and so, so that's him. And then the next oldest is 16 Ruby. She's a junior in high school and she's just, she is a firecracker. That's how we'll describe her. <laughs> that girl has, I knew from the day I saw her on the video that, you know, she was explaining all the, everything and she was very parentified. Like I said, I knew from day one that she, she was going to be my one that was going to take a lot of attention. Um, and she, and she has, but our, the relationship we've developed has just been really, really neat over the years of her healing and, um, you know, all of, all of the time that we've gone through and her just being reassured over and over again of the love and safety that she has. And it took her a long time to believe me, you know, that I'll love you no matter what. It took a really long time for her to believe that. I think, you know, she finally believes it after five years. <laughs> um, and so next is Alicia. She's our 12 year old. She just turned 12 yesterday. So she is just started middle school, super mm -hmm. smart girl. They're all really intelligent. Actually, it's it's very cool to see their their little brains function. Um, and so she's, you know, a straight A student. She's, you know, very focused on her grades. And um, she's a little bit of a perfectionist. And I always tell her, you know, don't you don't have to be perfect. I'll love you no matter what, you know, yeah. if you get a B, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's her. And then next we have two birthdays coming up. So we have Anthony who's turning 11 
Um, and then Aubriella two weeks later, we have birthdays two weeks apart, two weeks apart. So wow. <laughs> February and March, we have three birthdays, all two weeks apart. Um, so Anthony's turning 11, Aubriella is turning 10. And then we have summer birthdays for the other two. So right now they're eight and seven. And um, in the summer, they'll be, they'll be nine and eight and nine. <laughs> it's hard to keep track of, I know. <laughs> yeah. So they, well, especially when their birthday, when we're in the middle of birthdays, because yeah. normally I can count the numbers, eight, nine, yes. 10, 11, you know, that's how old they are. <laughs> but then yeah. when we get to March, I'm like, oh, wait. <laughs> yeah. And I, I have so. eight kids total and I know everybody's birth date and year, but as uh -huh. my, as my adult kids get older, it's like, once you passed, once you pass 21 <laughs> and then you pass 30, I can't be responsible for knowing how old you are, but I can tell you when your birthday is, right? I need a calculator right. to figure out your age, right? <laughs> right. Because then I have to add grandchildren into the mix of yeah. birthday <laughs> remembrance, right? Yes. <laughs> wow. And so the yeah. little ones, the youngest ones, how are they all doing? They're doing really well. They, uh, the youngest three, um, they... Ha well, the youngest three boys, they have a diagnosed uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Oh, yes. And um, it's, you know, it's really more common than I think we know. I look back at some of my previous placements and think, gosh, you know, I think they had that too, yeah. you know, one or two of them. And um, so it was interesting for me to learn about that. And, yes. and I, I never understood that there was a spectrum of fetal alcohol exposure. I knew about fetal alcohol syndrome, um, but I never understood the spectrum of it. And um, we had some reliable sources from their parents past that, um, you know, gave us the information that said, um, yeah, you know, she was drinking and, um, you know, so we knew that that had taken place along with the drugs. Um, but we found out that alcohol was, you know, really one of the most um, dangerous substances yes. that, yeah. you know, affects children so deeply. But very interestingly, it has affected the three boys very differently. Mm -hmm. um, one of them has some learning disabilities. Um, another one, I would say my youngest, he's about almost two years behind in mm -hmm. school. And, yep. and that's the way he started when he came to me as a, as a two-year-old, almost three, he was about like a one-year-old. I remember, I mean, he could barely speak. He, he was very much like all over the place with, you know, exploring everything with his hands and putting things in his mouth, like a, like a child, a baby would do. Mm -hmm. And um, I told the social worker, at the time I said the the reason it's difficult is because he's you know a baby but he's got a body of an almost three-year-old so he can climb up on things and he can yeah. get to everything you know yeah. he's up on the counters and uh, so he was just a, a interesting challenge at first we my husband and I were just constantly following these kids around and making sure um, you know come to find out after about a year with us that they um, when they settled in and everything, they did make some diagnoses of ADHD, which we also know is common with yep. um, trauma yep. and, and all of that and the fetal alcohol, it all goes together, you know. And yeah. so we went through all the process of learning about that 
the medications and, you know, getting them on their dosages and everything. So, I mean, they're all just doing so well things that, that I hadn't expected at first. I really couldn't discern in the beginning what their uh, capacity was going to be because I, you know, I, I'd never dealt with the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder before I, I just saw what I saw and I learned that you just meet them where they are. If they're, if they act like a one-year-old, you, you know, you sort of let them develop, you let them develop into a two-year-old and a three-year-old. And um, you try to be, you know, age appropriate, you know, adjusted age appropriate. Right. Right. And so I learned about this and, and that's just what I did as far as the way I communicated with them, the expectations I had for them on behavior, you know, because it's easy to say, oh, well, you're three or you're four, you shouldn't be doing this still. Uh, but you have to remember that they really like emotionally, they're not three or four, you know, right. there's still one or two. And so it was, you know, it was a learning curve in that way to, okay, you get one minute time out, you know, for a four year old, normally you'd be like, no, no, you, you've got to sit longer. But for him, that's, that's all that he could handle. And that's, you know, it still meant something to him. And so those types of adjustments were, you know, a learning, a learning curve for us, but the, the things that they've accomplished just have really exceeded what my expectations were, because I just said, you know, whatever will be, will be, you know, we're here to facilitate as much as they can grow. And, and I know that they still have so much more growth to do, but I've been so pleased with their progress in, in everything, their behaviors, their um, impulse control that they had to learn, you know, that goes along with the ADHD, um, their, their educational challenges that they've had, they just, all love school. They never want to stay home. They always want to go. Um, they have really great resources at school. We were really blessed to get them into a, a great school. So they they really just are doing wonderfully. That's wonderful. And I didn't know about the FASD because my uh, you know, my youngest two that we adopted internationally, they're mm-hmm. teenagers now, but they both have fetal alcohol syndrome diagnosis. And then just along our parenting journey, um, I ended up becoming a certified facilitator of the facets model because, um, you know, when they became teenagers, um, all of that stuff, the impulse control and the dismaturity and the learning challenges and the processing information and all of the, the executive function stuff, Mm -hmm. um, just, it just became so much harder. Um, so I, I took a deep dive into that world to understand what is this FASD because we have attachment, we have connection. There's so many other great things going on, but what on earth is like, what is this, you know, the impulsivity and things like that. So um, I got professional training and then we, I offer a professional training. So um, we have lots of resources through our nonprofit to, to be able to support families. A, we have a support group for, for parents, uh, an online support group for um, Mm -hmm. families who have kiddos who are prenatally exposed online training, um, all kinds of things. And, 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 and many, many of our listeners of this podcast are all parents of kiddos with FASD diagnosed or not. So yeah, um, right. I, I did not know that part of your story. So my face probably yeah. lit up when you said that because <laughs> yeah. it's a common journey and most families, yeah. you know, adoptive and foster parents don't even know because there isn't a diagnosis or they haven't had um, any understanding of that. And they're just dealing with those really big behaviors and wondering, right what on earth is going on without understanding that, you know, the behaviors are just symptoms 
of a brain-based condition caused by that right. prenatal alcohol exposure. So, um, so that's an incredible, you know, that, that, yeah. that, that you it, know. and it was such a blessing the way that diagnosis came about because, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't have that background or understanding even through my fostering time, which is a shame, you know, it should have right. been something that, that there was more training on, I think that still lacks. And so I think your, your resources are, are much needed. But um, we were just referred to a, a clinic in, in San Diego is a big clinic pediatric yes. hospital, yes. and they referred us for, um, it was called like, genetics and uh, something like, you know, something to do with maybe birth defects or something. They wanted to see if there was anything um, that they could figure out that was, you know, uh, medically behind the delays that right. the kids right. had. And so we just went in thinking, oh, you know, maybe they're going to tell us, you know, do some blood tests or something like that. And maybe they're just going to check, you know, genetic stuff or, or something, you know, we, we weren't sure. And in walks, like one of the, the top experts in fetal alcohol spectrum disorder that happened to be in that clinic there in San Diego. And, um, he immediately was like, it sounds like this. And he started asking me all these questions. I was like, yep, yep, yep. And just started ticking off the boxes. And then um, he asked me about alcohol consumption. And I called their, um, their half sister, she's older. So she um, was like 20 at the time. And I said, Do you know, um, I actually talked to her during the visit, I was texting her, I think, do you know, you know, about um, her drinking at all during pregnancy? She said, Oh, yeah, absolutely she was trying i said okay well i guess i go. guess we know what's going yeah. on so um and that was confirmed you know by a couple of other uh, really close friends that she had had in las vegas that the kids still stay in touch with because that's really their only family their parents actually grew up in foster care so wow. they really didn't have when when they say there was no one to take them there really was no one these parents wow. were just on their own no support, no resources, a product of the system, yeah. you know, and yeah. it just was that cycle. So, um, so yeah, that that's how that came about. And I was really feeling blessed to have that information so early on, because I knew exactly, you know, what to do and how to target it. And I'm sure there will be more as they uh, become teenagers. I have one of them that really, really struggles with the behavior stuff. Mm -hmm. um, he's, you know, he's still young. And I know that, you know, working on it now and working on those things as he grows is going to help, but all those different, you know, the hormones come in and, the, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. all, you know, I know it's going to be a whole nother ball game. So yeah, um, it definitely yeah. becomes more challenging because mine are 18 and 20 right now. Um, yeah. and it, and it does get harder in the teenage years. And then also the gap is more obvious between their neurotypical peers and where sure, they're sure. at. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that poses challenges as well. So, and they don't outgrow it, but we can, they can definitely learn and they just need lots of accommodations and supports to be safe, yeah. you know, and to be successful. Right. So, um, right. yeah, yeah, it's a big, it's a big part of the story. So real yeah. quick, I wanted to ask you, so you, so life is busy, right? You've got seven yes. kids <laughs> at home, you've got adult kids, you've got grandkids. So, you know, what is, what is a day in, in the life like, because you're, you know, you're, this is your second family almost, right? I'm Because right. I, I have all my adult kids are out of the house. Our youngest two are still home. Um, mm -hmm. So it's almost like, you know, a second life. So we're older at this point, right? So right. do you have 
Do you have help? Do you, I know earlier you mentioned you had had a nanny at one point. So do you have help and support at home? How do you do all what you do? The funny thing about the way my husband and I's situation has has worked out is that, you know, in our younger years as parents, when we were raising our first five, I was more the primary parent. I was going to school or I began working as a nurse, which is typically a three day, 12 hour shifts, you know, and then I'm home four days. So I did the most of the hands on stay at home parenting stuff. And, and now at this point in our lives, my husband was military. Um, and then he worked for the post office for another 15 years. And he retired from both, uh, right about maybe three months in when the kids, the kids uh -huh. moved in about three or four months later. And we knew he was headed that way, which is another reason why we knew that we would be able to, to manage this because we knew that he was going to be full time available to them. And we knew that was important with this many of them. Yeah. So, um, so my husband is the official stay home dad. He drives drives our big Ford Transit, you know, bus looking <laughs> Amazon delivery van. <laughs> he drives to school every day. The kids all go to the same school. It's a K through 12. And so um, he drives us to school and everyone knows him. And, you know, he's a hi, Mr. Willis. And, you know, he takes them to the doctor appointments. And then he just puts me on FaceTime at the doctor appointments because I'm, you know, here at my desk working, yeah. but I can, I can, you know, the, the wonders of modern technology, I can yeah. be right there yeah. with my nursing brain to say, oh, you know, what about this or maybe that, but he's the one that does all the running around. He does m almost all of the cooking. Um, and it's just been, it's been a blessing to see him dig into that role. And it's been a little bit of a chuckle for me as well to see some of his frustration. <laughs> and think oh okay now you get it now you get it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't always have that opportunity um to switch roles like that but I think um it's just it's really is the perfect setup I mean I I've worked at home for 13 years so far before uh you know everyone had to learn to telecommute with the pandemic I I worked at home already and so um you know the kids come home from school every day they run straight up to my office they stand in line and <laughs> take turns <laughs> to tell me you know tell me what they want to tell me and that's our little routine and then they go back downstairs and they have a snack and they do their chores and dad watches over the chores and starts the homework and cooks dinner and then I I finish at five and we have dinner together so I mean that's a normal day um but there's always you know little little tweaks in that when they're in sports so they've all played soccer which they loved um that was the first time they ever you know had an opportunity to play organized sports and they just all loved it so much and so they've played for three years now and soccer season is always complete insanity in our house because we have five kids going to five different fields for practice wow. two times a week each and it's from like August to November is always just insanity. And um, so that, you know, obviously the schedule is different then. Um, also, my um, second oldest son lives down the street with his three um, children. So they're over here all the time. Um, you know, yeah. he'll he'll drop them off. Hey, can you, you know, watch the kids for a minute? I'm going to I got to do this. And sure, bring them over because <laughs> the kids love to play together. 
um, again, like his kids are similar in ages and my kids get so excited when they come over and we've worked on this sort of, you know, I tell them now, when you go to grandma's house, your grandma's house or your grandpa's house, you know how they always like give you treats and, or slip you some money. You know, mm -hmm. I try to tell them like, these are still my grandkids. So sometimes I have to, you know, give them a piece of candy. But at the same time, I'm telling you, you have to wait till after dinner. <laughs> but they get it, you know, they yeah. get it. And I think it's it's a little bit of a tricky balance. I have to be like, eh, okay, you know, yeah. sometimes I give it to my kids too, of course, I don't want them having any jealousies or anything, yeah. but they, they get it. And I still I'm really um, cognizant of that, you know, making sure that I do give that you know, special attention yeah. that a grandma yeah. would give, you know, even though I'm a busy mom still, yeah. um, I really want to always honor my commitment to, to do that and to be that for them. And I think the fact that they're all such good friends really helps so much because anytime my um, daughter comes to visit from Utah and she brings her three, they all, again, just blend right in. They love to play together. And uh, my other son lives about an hour and a half away. He's got two girls. So we have eight grandchildren and they're all under the age of nine. <laughs> so, wow. I mean, it, it works great. And sometimes we have all of them at the same wow. time, all eight of them plus our seven. And it's just like, it's complete chaos. chaos but I love yeah. every minute of it. <laughs> I have, I love it I have love eight grandkids other. also. And mine oh, are 10, 10 down to, um, well, the, the youngest will be one in June. So it's 10, 10 to almost one. So I can, I can understand the big yeah. family thing and the craziness and it. it's blessed chaos, yeah. right. As I always like to say, so, yeah. so Pam, how could our listeners, if they wanted to follow you, I know, I know you're on social media, where would be a great place for people to check you out and, and learn more? I started an Instagram page uh, about, I would say maybe I was like six months into um, the journey with the kids. And I just really started it as a way to almost blog. I, I didn't really, um, I would, had never really been a big, you know, Instagram poster or anything, but I thought, well, I'm going to do this just to kind of share my feelings and share with other people and connect with other foster and adoptive moms and get, you know, get to know some of the issues that are out there. And so I have an Instagram page that I named second chance seven. And the way I came up with that name was really that my husband and I have a second chance at parenting these seven. And so it's our second chance. And in a way, it's their second chance, you know, to have a, a, a life that they thought might be completely different, they might have been split up, you know, they were told they might have to go live in different homes, and they had lost their parents. So, so we're both in our second chance era, you can say. <laughs> so they're my second chance seven. And that's the name of my Instagram. And honestly, it's not like a typical Instagram. If you go back to the beginning of my post and you start reading, you'll see some really um, just insight into what I what I went through and the journey that we 
had together, I shared a lot. And nowadays, I don't have the time to really be in there blogging a lot and talking a lot about those things in in writing. So I mostly just do the stories, you know, every day, I'll just kind of take out the take out my phone and say, what are we having for dinner? Or what are you guys working on? Or they're playing or they're we're always doing something we're on vacation, whatever next week, we'll be at the beach all week, because they're on vacation. So I'll have my camera out all week, just, you know, they'll be digging in the sand and relaxing and having a great time. And um, so I encourage anybody who goes to my page to go back to the some of the beginning posts and read a little bit about our journey. Oh, definitely. And we'll put a link in the show notes um, okay. to this episode so folks can easily find you there. Great. Um, so as we, as we wrap up today and I think we could chat forever, but we, we have to, we have to have to land the plane. Um, most of our listeners are also adoptive parents, foster parents. They're on this journey. Many of them are parenting kids prenatally exposed. So Mm -hmm. Pam, any, I always love to end with some words of encouragement for our listeners. So any advice or words of encouragement you would like to offer? My advice and and encouragement always comes from gaining knowledge. Mm -hmm. I think that the knowledge that you can gain on how to care for children of trauma is so crucial. I I wish that we had had more of that type of training as we were going through our foster training. Um, I, you know, and I gained so much of it through the years, but I would read, just read and read and read and try to understand behaviors and how I could help them and how I could best, you know, assist. So there are some great, great books out there. And I, you know, I have a couple that I like to recommend, but they're probably the ones everyone's recommending. You know, the, the body keeps the score is a wonderful one for PTSD and, and trauma. And um, there's the connected child is one of the first ones that I read um, by Dr. Purvis. And yeah, and and I just I read it about halfway through my fostering journey. And I was like, oh, that's like this little guy I had. And oh, that's just like, and I just started recognizing so many things. I thought if I had read this before, mm-hmm. I would have been a better foster parent from the beginning. I want to go back and start over. <laughs> yeah. So just, just educate yourself as much as possible yes. is yeah. my, is my advice. Yeah. Great advice. And that's one of the things we like to do here um, on the podcast and with our resources too. So Pam, thank you so much for sharing your incredible story with us. We love the stories of second chances. So we love that. Um, Thanks for being with us today. Of course. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Wow. What an incredible story. I hope you were inspired and encouraged today by Pam's adoption story. Love those second chances. Um, And I I hope you really were inspired by that today. Um, And I'm thrilled that you were tuning in and listening. We'll make sure that we have a link to Pam's Instagram in the show notes for this episode so that you can learn more if you so choose to. In addition to encouraging you also, we are always here to equip you for this parenting journey. And I didn't know when Pam and I started our conversation that she had kiddos also diagnosed with an FASD. So um, loved that part of our conversation. And as you all know, if you're regular listeners, I'm, I am a mom of two teens with FAS um, and a facilitator of the FACETS neurobehavioral model. So passionate about um, providing FASD resources and supports um, to fellow uh, parents who are on this journey. Uh, also, I have, in addition to our Justice for Orphans website, where you can find all that information out about our 
support group and the trainings and resources. Um, that is justicefororphansny.org. Um, my own personal website where I blog and where I have other resources, sandraflack.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Um, uh, there's a link on my my sandraflack.com page to an article that I wrote for Focus on the Family, along with some video modules that 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 pair with that article. Um, so there's a link to that and on that website as well. So we have lots of things for you. You do not have to go through this journey alone. I know when my boys were diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome many, many years ago, we were handed no resources whatsoever. Um, so I want to make sure that that doesn't happen to you. We've got lots of resources for you. So I hope that you will check them out. Um, and again, grateful that you and spent your valuable time with us today. Make sure that you find and follow us on social media. Justice for Orphans is on both Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And me, my, your host, Sandra Flack, I'm on all of those platforms as well. So I hope you'll find us, follow us, check it out, go to the website to get the resources. And also feel free to email us and reach out. I always love to hear from our listeners. Have a great week and we'll see you here next time on the Adoption and Foster Care Journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.